Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 36 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I have discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for tuning into the show today. Expeditions into the gaming wildlands are fun, but they are much more so when we have a full party making the trek together. On today's episode, we're counting down another one of my top 10 lists. It might seem easy to put together a list of things you like and talk about them, but the lists I've done so far really force me to think through my favorites and how to rank them over other things. This particular list was probably the hardest one for me so far, but I had a fantastic time really thinking through some of the things that really make the games we like that much more special by analyzing the different mechanics that form their foundations. Now, if you're new to the show, first let me extend to you a warm welcome. Didi, our canine expedition leader, will be making the rounds to initiate you into the expedition by sniffing your leg profusely, all while making uncomfortable, awkward eye contact. But secondly, I wanted to just throw out that our top 10 countdown episodes are typically more focused episodes, so I tend to leave out any sort of peek behind the scenes or behind the curtain sort of banner. We're going to get into this pretty straight away, so once you get situated, grab a seat by the fire and settle in. So for today's top 10 list, I thought it would be fun to take a deep dive into some of our favorite games and really look into some of what makes them so great. Now, I am not talking about a compelling story arc, I'm not talking about the jaw-dropping graphics, or even the overall gameplay experience per se. We're digging a little deeper and talking about those things that are under the hood. That's right, we are talking about my top 10 favorite game mechanics. Now, when I was originally writing the script for this episode, I kind of kept going back and forth on the definition of a game mechanic. After a little soul-searching, a little bit of research, and talking to a few people, this is kind of what I came up with, and this is the model that I'm going to use for the episode. So when we think about game mechanics, they are not to be confused with gameplay. Gameplay and game mechanics are two different things. Gameplay includes things like the game's objectives, the story, any challenges that are meant to be overcome. Game mechanics are the rules that the player is designed to interact with or features of the game that play into the gameplay experience. An example of what I mean by gameplay mechanic would be QTEs or quick time events. A QTE is when a button prompt comes up on screen and the player has to react quickly by pressing the appropriate button. If they don't do that quick enough or press the wrong button, something bad usually happens. Another example of a game mechanic would be a game having a morality system. A game with a morality system will keep track of a player's choices or actions in-game and change the game's narrative or gameplay experience depending on which direction your character's moral compass is facing. If you take a step back and look at some of your favorite video games, you can start to pull out some of these mechanics. For those that have played Mario Odyssey on the Switch, throwing Cappy at an enemy monster and Mario taking over that monster and controlling them is also an example of a game mechanic. Does all of that make sense? 
Well, good. I hope it does. Because in today's episode of the show, using that formula, I am going to be counting down my top 10 favorite video game mechanics. Now, before we begin, allow me to rattle off my usual disclaimer when it comes to lists and set the scene for what's upcoming. First and foremost, this is my top 10 list, and it contains my personal opinions and nothing more. You'll probably have your own list, and it will most likely be different from mine, which is completely awesome. I am genuinely curious what your favorite game mechanics are. I did put a call out for comments on our social media pages a little bit ago, so I'll be sprinkling those responses into the show as we go forward. Second, I am only including game mechanics from games that I've actually played, so I can speak to them from personal experience. That said, if there's a mechanic you thought should have been on my list and isn't, that's probably the reason why I just didn't play the game and wasn't able to experience it firsthand. Or I probably just never thought of it, too, because that is also a thing that happened while I was making this list. And third, I based my favorite mechanics off of the following criteria. Creativity, how seamlessly the mechanic impacted the gameplay experience, and overall fun factor for me. Basically, if I looked at a mechanic and said something along the lines of, Ooh, that is fucking cool, then it probably made the list. Alright, and with that, I think we have all bases covered. The time has come for us to look at some of gaming's best ideas with reverence and give praise to the mechanics built into some of our favorite games that make them truly, truly great. Instead of just looking on the surface at that shiny, waxed exterior, let's pop the hood and check out the engine, the thing that truly makes our games go. Let's dive in to my personal favorite top 10 video game mechanics. until I was an older, somewhat wiser adult that I found myself taking a step back and really looking at the video games that I love. Longtime listeners of the show will know that it really started with the original Resident Evil for me. It was the first game that I ever played that had a hook that just got me, and it was a game that used some pretty unique ideas to achieve that scare factor that Resident Evil is known for. A few years ago, when I was taking stock of the video games that I really enjoy, I took a deep dive into Resident Evil and tried to understand why it was that I really liked it so much. Really, what was it that was under the hood that made that experience so memorable for me? As I examined one of my favorite games, really, the realization kind of hit me pretty quick. It's the game mechanics themselves that are what really helped the game become something special to me. I'm talking about the fixed camera angles where you can't quite see the monsters off screen, but you can hear them. There's also the notorious tank controls, the super clunky yet ingenious way you control your character. 
The way your character's inventory was managed was also a good game mechanic. Characters could only carry so much at a time, so you had to manage resources using item boxes scattered around the mansion and other areas of the game. All of these parts came together to form one awesome experience, and that's what we're here to celebrate today. The game mechanics in some of our most beloved games deserve so much more recognition than they get, and today, I'm going to count down my personal favorites. Now, very quickly before we begin, just in case you skip the short intro to this week's episode, let me set the table. The game mechanics that are on my list come from games that I've played before. I wanted to draw from my own experience, so if there's a mechanic that you think should be on this list and is not on this list, that is probably why it is not on this list. I just have not experienced it firsthand. And when it comes to how I ranked my favorite mechanics, I'm looking at the overall creativity of said mechanic, how seamlessly it impacted the gameplay experience, and the overall fun factor for me. It's all pretty simple and sweet, alright? And we also got a couple listener comments this week when I put a call out for them on our social media pages, so I'll be sprinkling a few of those into the overall episode as well. Okay, no more expedition dumps. We are here. It's time to settle in and get cozy, my friends. Let's count down my favorite video game mechanics. Number 10. Number 10 on my list of favorite game mechanics is the gravity mechanic from Gravity Rush, and by extension, Gravity Rush 2. The original Gravity Rush was released on the PlayStation Vita, Sony's handheld system, and I was fortunate enough to play it the year that the game launched. All I heard people talk about was how unique a gameplay experience this game had. And at that time, I was all in on the PlayStation Vita, so I grabbed Gravity Rush, sight unseen. And today, looking back, I am very thankful I took a chance on this one. So in Gravity Rush, you play as Cat, a young gal who wakes up in the city of... Hexaville? Hexville. Hexaville. We're going with Hexaville. Hexaville, which is a city that is floating up in the air. Cat has no memory when she wakes up and soon comes across Dusty, a mysterious cat. Just like all cats, Dusty isn't what he seems. When he's around Cat, she gains the ability to manipulate how gravity impacts her. While Cat is learning about all of this, gravity storms are appearing all over the city and they are spewing forth creatures known as the Nevi. It's up to Cat to use her gravity-defying powers to help the people of Hexaville defeat the Nevi threat and uncover clues to her past, all while learning and mastering her newfound abilities. Cat's ability to alter her center of gravity is a little hard to describe without a visual, so hopefully I can do the job pretty well here. When you jump off the ground and activate Cat's powers, it's as if she flips a switch and shuts gravity off completely. 
she'll be floating in the air, and at this point, you can spin the camera around. Using the on-screen reticle, you can plot out where you want Cat to go at that point. At the press of another button, Cat will start to fall towards whatever point that you made. You can line her up on walls or even ceilings, and when she hits that point, that point becomes the new floor. This allows for pretty much any surface to become a floor, and it makes exploration a magnificent experience. Combat in this game works in almost the same way. If a Nevi is in range of Cat, you can have Cat float in the air for a moment, and then line her up with the Nevi itself. She'll rocket herself towards it like a missile, and when she makes contact, she'll do damage to it. This gravity mechanic makes the game world so much more fun to explore, and really turns traditional exploration on his head, quite literally. <laughs> Flying around, or rather falling around, is snappy and quick, and it's awesome watching everything flow past you as you're falling towards your destination. There are plenty of items and collectibles to find in this game, and I found it much more enjoyable hunting for things in this game than I do in some other games because the gravity mechanic is just so fun to play with. But more than anything, I loved learning how to use this mechanic more than actually mastering it. Let me explain what I mean by that. You see, Cat doesn't remember who she is when the game begins, and she has an exceptionally hard time learning how to control her gravity abilities. Usually what happens in games like this, the developers give you a tutorial, you read the instructions on screen, then you very quickly master whatever it is that you need to master so the rest of the game can happen. In Gravity Rush, while some of these elements are present, you will not be mastering this gravity mechanic after just a few moments of gameplay. It takes a little while to master, and even when you think you have a handle on things, the game throws in a few more challenges to make sure that you're always developing and evolving how you use your newfound powers. It really does feel like that you're learning how to use these abilities right alongside Cat in the narrative, and I really appreciated the game for this. It was another way that I connected with Cat, but also with the game world itself. I became more confident in my abilities at the same pace that Cat did, and when she finally mastered her abilities, I felt as though I had mastered them along with her. A video game really is special when you feel like that you're actually growing and developing along with the main character, and Gravity Rush absolutely nails it here. So if you've never played Gravity Rush or its sequel, I certainly recommend that you do. The original was even remastered at some point, so it should be much more available to play today. And, you never know, you might find yourself falling for it just like I did. <laughs> did you like my gravity pun there? <sighs> Alright, moving on. Number 9 
Point number nine on my personal list of top 10 game mechanics is the interrogation mechanic from The Punisher. Released in 2005 for the PlayStation 2 and the Xbox, The Punisher has you playing as the Marvel Comics anti-hero who's on a mission to avenge his family's brutal murder by taking out anyone and everyone who preys upon the innocent. The game's story was sort of a mix of the 2004 film starring Thomas Jane and a few comic book storylines. It's a third-person shooter, and it came out to relatively mixed reviews. But of all the things that The Punisher is known for, it's not the gunplay, it's not the story, and it's not really the presentation. While I argue all of these things are really good overall, this game is more well-known for the brutal ways that you can interrogate and torture your enemies. Now, let me be clear, the actual act of interrogation and torture is not what I'm highlighting here. It's how the ability to do this and the mechanic itself blends itself into the gameplay and enhances it. So here's a quick rundown on how interrogating an enemy works. When you grab a bad guy in this game, you have the ability to start interrogating them. You can do this pretty much anywhere, and the Punisher will use either his hands or his handgun to put the squeeze on a baddie. When an interrogation starts, you'll see a meter on screen. As you apply pressure to the enemy, there's a little indicator on the meter, and you want to get this indicator in the middle of the meter, in the sweet spot, if you will. Each time you choke, punch, press your gun against the skull of your victim, it fine-tunes that indicator. If you keep it in the sweet spot for a few seconds, your victim will become broken. When you break somebody, they'll start to spill all sorts of valuable information if they happen to know any. You can use this technique to gain access to hidden rooms, uncover secret weapon caches, or even learn some valuable backstory or the weakness of an upcoming enemy. You can even get a pretty healthy score boost if you pull off an interrogation. More than that, successful interrogations will also restore the Punisher's health as well. But that is not all. There are a number of environmental interrogations that you can perform as well. You can drag a bad guy over to a table saw and use that to get information out of them. You can also hang a goon over the top of a shark tank. Or you can put their head inside of a drill press. The mechanic itself still operates the same way, but this allows you to use so many different things around you to strike fear in those who do evil to others. Now, with regular and environmental interrogations, you don't really want to kill the person that you're putting the squeeze on, especially if you kill them a little too early and you don't get any useful information out of them. But I have to say, killing enemies during an interrogation is pretty fucking intense. They can be pretty violent to the point where some people might actually find them to be a little squeamish. Not me, though. I am one of those psychopaths that think every way you can kill an enemy is pretty creative, actually. But that aside, the developers had to turn the screen black and white whenever one of these gruesome deaths played out on screen in order to dampen the violence and the visual impact. This was because there was a danger that the game was going to get slapped with an adults-only rating. So all of that said, what makes this a game mechanic that's worth being on my top 10 list? Well, it's certainly more than creatively torturing and killing a bunch of people. The Punisher, as a character, 
has always interested me and intrigued me. I'm a huge fan of the character as a whole and love reading the comics. And above all, I've always been fascinated by the Punisher's story. Frank Castle loses his family in a gangland shootout, and he loses his wife and kids in the crossfire. Using his military training, Frank Castle becomes the Punisher and takes the fight to all the criminals, killers, rapists, sadists, and all the lowlives that prey on the innocent. The Punisher, though, isn't some crazed vigilante killer who rushes into a situation just to cause as much chaos as possible. He's cold, calculating, and he is committed to his mission. The pain that the Punisher feels is channeled into his mission to the point where he really doesn't feel anything anymore. All that's left is the mission, and evil must be punished. This whole idea really manifests itself in the gameplay, especially when you're getting your hands on a scumbag and you're pressing them for information. I found it very easy to fall into character in this game. I wasn't running amok trying to blast everything in sight with reckless abandon. I would strategically dismantle the enemy and find opportunities to interrogate the enemy in an effort to further my mission. That mission eventually stopped being get to the end of the level. That mission turned into the Punisher's mission. Punish those that do evil onto others. The game itself overall was very fun to play, but it actually made me feel very stoic and focused while I was playing it. When I think back to it, I didn't kill my enemy for the thrill of it. It all had a purpose, and the fantastic voice acting from Thomas Jane himself solidified the experience for me. As I was applying just the right amount of pressure to my enemy and watching them break, I felt satisfaction at what I learned and the score boost that I got, but really, this was just part of the mission. And at the end of the day, this is not vengeance. Revenge is not a motive, it's an emotional response. No, my friends, not vengeance, punishment. Stay quiet and stay here with Molly. All hell's gonna break loose. They're gonna free all the inmates and escape in the confusion. What about you? I'm gonna kill all the inmates and escape in the confusion. Number eight. Number 8 on my list of top 10 game mechanics is a mechanic that arguably changed the way we play third-person shooters today, and is probably one of the most badass. I am talking about Bullet Time from the Max Payne series. Even if you aren't a hardcore gamer, and even if you haven't played any of the Max Payne games before, I'm willing to bet that you have an idea of what Bullet Time is. There's even a chance that you've seen the Matrix movies and saw what bullet time looks like on the big screen. But Max Payne, originally released in 2001 on the PlayStation 2 and Xbox, is arguably where it all started. For those unfamiliar with Max Payne, it's a third-person shooter where you control Max Payne, 
an NYPD detective that embarks on a mission to solve the brutal murder of his family. Controlling Max, you'll see yourself through several levels full of bad guys as you progress through the story and work to uncover the truth. And while the story in Max Payne is pretty good and presented exceptionally well, it's the gameplay experience that really stands out. Now, the gameplay as a whole has its flaws. The controls are a bit clunky and precision was not that great generally. Movement was also awkward, and there were some sections of the game that I argue are just plain unpolished. But all of that goes out the window when you start using bullet time. When you enter bullet time, time slows to a crawl and everything is in slow motion. While your character is also moving slowly, aiming your weapons still happens in real time, so you're able to line up precise shots in very quick succession. You can line up a headshot on a goon to your right, pull the trigger, and while your gun is discharging, you can move your targeting reticle to the goon that's over on your left. Line up a shot and put them down, all before they can raise their own weapons. To make bullet time even more useful and even more badass looking, you can perform it while you're diving. You can start diving to one side and activate bullet time while you're parallel to the ground, and while everything is in slow motion, line up kill shots and take out multiple scumbags before you even hit the ground. My favorite use of bullet time was diving out from around a corner and taking out multiple enemies before they even knew I was there. The allure of bullet time is pretty obvious, but it was just part of the overall Max Payne package for me. Max as a character is much like the Punisher in that he really has nothing to lose. While the Punisher has compartmentalized his trauma and pain, Max is still struggling with it at times as the game moves on. He still gets emotional and he still gets angry, and the act of literally diving somewhat recklessly into a cluster of enemies, but channeling those emotions and focus into precision shooting, just helps immerse the player in the overall experience. While bullet time is very much a gimmick, it didn't feel all that gimmicky to me. And that's not even scratching the surface on how bullet time as a mechanic went on to influence other bullet time type mechanics in other video games. Take the Deadeye mechanic in Red Dead Redemption. I guarantee that it would not have been a thing if bullet time was not a thing. But at the end of the day, bullet time makes my list because it ingrains itself so seamlessly into the gameplay experience. And I can argue that there aren't too many other mechanics out there that make you feel like a badass more so than Max Payne's bullet time. Number 7 Number 7 on my list of favorite video game mechanics is from Gears of War, and that amazing game mechanic is called Active Reload. 
Of the few Xbox-exclusive IPs out there, I have always loved the Gears of War series. I never played them a ton, admittedly, but I've played through all of the mainline entries, with the exception of 5 and Judgment. Sadly, though, I never got to play with any friends, so my experiences with Gears were always solo ones. But those experiences were incredibly memorable. For the uninitiated, Gears of War is a franchise that largely follows Marcus Phoenix, a soldier of the Coalition of Ordered Governments. The world of Sarah is at war. Humans are in a conflict with a subterranean enemy known as the Locust, and it's up to Marcus and his squad to take the fight to the enemy in a last-ditch effort to eradicate the Locust threat and save humanity. It's all pretty standard fare on the outside, but don't let the simplicity of those last few sentences fool you. Any of the Gears of War games are fantastic cover-based shooters that offer tons of fun with awesome action set pieces and ways to decimate your enemies. Gears of War brought us one of the most iconic weapons in all of video games, the Lancer. The Mark II version of the Lancer sports a fully functional chainsaw at the end of the gun barrel that can make short work of anyone or anything stupid enough to get close to the person holding it. And while this weapon on its own could be considered its own game mechanic, how you reload your weapons in Gears of War is what really takes the cake here. In any game involving firearms, especially more modern ones, Reloading your weapon is potentially more important than actually firing your weapon. Reloading isn't something you just do. You have to be very aware of several things when you go to initiate a reload. Are you safe from the enemy? Do you have enough time to reload your weapon, or do you need to consider another tactic? If an enemy tries to run you down while you're reloading, what are your options? Will you even have any? Once your reload is complete, you're able to go back on the offensive. And when you reload, you typically get an idea of how much time you need in order to execute that reload in the future. However, in Gears of War, the entire dynamic of reloading changes to the point it becomes a game in and of itself. Now in Gears, you'll automatically reload your weapon when you run out of ammo, but you can also initiate a reload before then. When your character reloads, a meter will appear underneath the weapon icon on screen. It's a visual representation of how much time is needed to reload and the progress towards it. If you just wait and do nothing, you'll reload your weapon and carry on your day of killing and slaughter. Now, on the meter, there'll be two areas that stick out. A small white space and a slightly larger gray space. If the little indicator of reload progress is in the gray area and you press the reload button again, you'll actually reload your weapon much quicker. Now, if you can achieve a perfect reload and hit your button while the indicator is in that very small white area, you'll reload your weapon quicker and any bullets that are refilled will come in with increased firepower, which is awesome. Now, here's the caveat. If you press your reload button again outside of the white or the gray areas, your active reload will fail and your weapon will jam for a moment, making the reload time longer than if you would have just done nothing in the first place. It's a pretty simple concept, but can you see how just that little bit of tug and pull can impact the entire gameplay experience? At its core, it is just a fantastic game mechanic. 
Really, all of what I described can happen in a matter of seconds. But when you're in the heat of battle and it's time to reload, taking a chance on a perfect reload to give you that burst of damage and speed you need to keep pressing your attack could mean the difference between victory or defeat. But you still have to weigh those options. If you aren't keeping calm in the heat of battle and you fuck up your reload, you'll put yourself in a much worse position and you could potentially find yourself gunned down. On the battlefield, mere seconds matter, and taking a chance like this to give yourself an edge in battle is something that never gets stale and never becomes cumbersome. Now before I forget, someone on our social media shouted out Active Reload as one of their favorite game mechanics, but I am sorry to say, I lost that comment in the ether somewhere. So if you're that person that tossed out that comment, first, I'm sorry I can't remember who you are. Second, I'm very thankful you took the time to reach out to the show, I really appreciate it. But third, I agree with you 110% on how awesome Active Reload is. I cannot count how many times I would have Locust storming my position and I was running low on ammunition, but an active reload was perfectly executed and it saved me and got me out of a jam. It is the perfect risk-reward sort of system and completely changes how you approach a cover-based shooter. More than that, though, it's something that really immerses you into the gameplay experience. Now, it's easy to put your back to a wall, pop out and fire a few rounds and then go back to your hidey hole, but when you know that you have the option to change the tide of battle with a perfect reload, you're immediately that much more engaged in the fight, and you sit up just a little bit straighter when the bullets are flying. And I think that, above all else, that's why I love Active Reload as a game mechanic so much, and why I think most of you out there listening do as well. Even the sound of achieving an Active Reload is so satisfying. Just, just listen to this. Ah, goddamn, that's nice. So the next time you're in a firefight and you're about to jam more rounds into your chosen instrument of death, take a chance on an active reload and show your enemy what a few extra seconds on the battlefield can mean for them as you mow them down in a blaze of glory. Number six. Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater takes my number 6 spot with its camouflage game mechanic. Okay, so hear me out. I know some of you Metal Gear diehards have some opinions on the camouflage mechanic in this game, and I can appreciate them all. It is not the fastest system, it can be a little cumbersome, and it certainly does not follow all the real-world rules of camouflage, and I get that. But this system wasn't just unique for the time, it really added to the overall experience that the developers were going for with this game. So to back it up for a moment and just set the table, Snake Eater is a third-person stealth-based action adventure for those of you that have never heard of this game before. 
chronologically, it's the prequel to the entire Metal Gear series. Players take control of Fox operative codenamed Naked Snake. Snake is sent into the vast wilderness of a Russian jungle and is tasked with rescuing a Russian scientist named Nikolai Sokolov. Sabotage or destroy his experimental weapon of mass destruction, and he also needs to assassinate his former mentor who has defected. Up to this point, Metal Gear games have traditionally been set in more urban environments. Military bases, prisons, airfields, and the like. In Snake Eater, much of your time will be spent infiltrating the wide-open wilderness where the only thing hiding you from the enemy is a patch of knee-high grass. This is where the game's camouflage system comes in. As Snake moves through an area, his camo index will rise and fall. This is represented as a percentage at the top of the screen. The higher the camo index percentage, the closer the enemy needs to be to you in order to spot you. The lower the camouflage index, the further an enemy can be away from you and still see you. In a game like this that is very stealth-focused, you want to do everything you can to keep that camo index as high as possible as you move from objective to objective. Sounds pretty simple, right? Well, it is. Sort of. The game will take the clothes Snake is wearing into account, and factor that into the camouflage index based on what Snake has around him, as well as his current posture. If you have on your standard olive drab uniform, which is more or less a solid dark green, hiding in some tall grass will afford you a decent amount of camo index. However, if you happen to have a camouflage uniform that's a bit more concealing, such as the leaf camo patterned uniform that has leaves and blades of grass on its overall pattern, your camo index will be much higher when you're in the underbrush. I mean, it all sounds pretty awesome, right? Well, here's the catch. As you're moving along, you're going to find yourself stopping, opening the menu, selecting another camouflage that you have in your inventory, and then exiting the menu before moving on quite a bit. It's a very manual process, and can be quite immersion-breaking for some, which is something I can absolutely understand. But this game mechanic as a whole is the perfect one for this type of game, especially for this game's setting. For me, the best video games are the ones that can put you into the experience to the point where you believe that you're actually in the game. You're completely tuned in, you're listening to sounds, feeling all of the actions you take, all of that. Snake Eater is a game that does this for me, and it's the camouflage system that solidifies that feeling. Snake himself is all alone behind enemy lines. He starts off with practically no equipment, and he has no backup, save the support crew that's on his radio. If Snake is spotted, there is no help that'll be coming. So that said, the mission has zero margin for error. There's way too much at stake for you to run off into the jungle all half-cocked. What this game encourages you to do is take your time, study your surroundings, and plan out your movements. You need to make sure that you're concealed, and nothing pulls me into the experience more than putting on the best camouflage, smearing on the best face paint, and slinking my way past the enemy. You really do feel like a badass spy, and when you're crawling past a guard or watching a huge patrol walk past you within inches, and they don't bat an eye at you, it is a feeling that you will never forget. 
Your heartbeat is going to be going through the roof, and you're just waiting for them to see you. But they don't. And now you have the option of slipping away, or pouncing on your prey with a swift takedown. Sure, you're probably going to find yourself changing clothes in the middle of the jungle multiple times, and it's going to take you some time to actually do that, but that is not the point. The point is how this game makes you feel, and not very many games can make me feel like a silent, deadly warrior than Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. Now speaking of Snake Eater, Chris over on our Facebook page chimed in with some of his favorite game mechanics and specifically called out Snake Eater's hunting mechanic. And I absolutely agree with you, Chris. The hunting mechanic just adds to that one man behind enemy lines sort of aesthetic. In Snake Eater, the game keeps track of your stamina. If it gets too low, it'll start to impact how Snake performs some of his actions. If stamina is too low, he won't be able to aim his weapons very accurately, for instance. You have to hunt animals in the environment and eat them in order to replenish that lost stamina. And yes, you can eat snakes, hence the name of the game. I did always appreciate this mechanic as it further pulled me into the experience since I needed to make sure that my own health was tip-top in order to keep pressing forward. It really turned the game into more of a stealth survival type of experience, which I absolutely appreciated. Chris also called out the Zero-G in Borderlands the pre-sequel as well as transforming Magikarp in Pokemon if you threw him into battle enough times. Now, I personally love the Borderlands pre-sequel, and I think it's a must-play for any Borderlands fan. But I have to admit... While I knew you could evolve Magikarp into a Gyarados, I never believed that until someone at school actually told me. I remember going home, completely skeptical, and I started to chuck my little Magikarp into battle. I thought it was a waste of time because Magikarp couldn't really do anything, but I also wanted to get all of my Pokemon to max level, so I knew it had to be done. But, sure enough... The time came and I was able to evolve poor, pathetic Magikarp into the Loch Ness Monster that is Gyarados. I think when this actually happened and I saw him evolving on screen, my eyes practically fell out of their sockets, they were so wide open. So I don't know if it's a game mechanic per se, at least how we're defining it here today, but it is still a fantastic thing to be done. Thanks so much for writing into the show, Chris. I hope you and the family are doing well. Number My number five slot is actually a two-for-one special. Both of these mechanics come from Splinter Cell Conviction. Now, at the risk of garnering a bunch of boos and disappointing looks from all of you diehard Splinter Cell fans, I'll come clean. Conviction and Blacklist are the only Splinter Cell games that I have played. 
I have never played Double Agent, I haven't played Pandora Tomorrow, and I haven't played Chaos Theory. I know, I know, it's bad, I get it, but one day I will go back and play these games. And that is because it all began here for me. It began with Splinter Cell Conviction. In Conviction, we play as series staple Sam Fisher. He's retired from Third Echelon, the agency that Sam used to work for. His daughter was killed in an apparent hit and run, and Sam is chasing down rumors that his daughter's death was not actually an accident as he was led to believe. Things start to heat up when Sam is thrown back into the action when a group of hitmen come after him in Malta. Sam escapes, but not without the help from some former colleagues from Third Echelon. Sam quickly finds himself involved in a conspiracy that runs deep within the U.S. government. Sam does what he does best to the bad guys as he slowly unravels the truth behind the conspiracy and learns the truth behind his daughter's death. Splinter Cell Conviction was a huge departure from the other Splinter Cell games and introduced a number of gameplay changes and new mechanics. In case you're unfamiliar with the series, Splinter Cell is a traditionally slow-paced stealth experience where you take control of Sam and work your way through areas by hiding in the shadows and neutralizing guards without making a sound. The earlier Splinter Cell games were very intense and some of them were incredibly tough punishing you for getting too aggressive and not thinking through your actions long term. They were incredible games though. Not that I can speak to them personally since I haven't played them all yet, but I've always wanted to give them a go, and I absolutely honor and respect the reverence that gamers have that love this series. When the developers designed Conviction, it was designed in such a way that it was a bit more accessible to newcomers to the series, and it was the perfect entry point for me, personally. It was a bit more action-focused, but the stealth elements were still very much present. So what new mechanics did Conviction bring to the table? First, it brought the last-known-position mechanic to the gameplay. For those that have played a game where you have to sneak around, isn't it odd that once you get spotted, it seems like everybody knows where your character is? Like, the person that spotted you has some sort of a psychic link with all the other guards on a level. Well, that is not the case in Conviction. If you're spotted, but you're able to evade your attackers and slink back into the shadows, a white silhouette of Sam's body will appear, and this indicates the last place that the enemy saw Sam. The enemies will tactically move towards that position instead of magically pursuing Sam wherever he's hiding. It makes for a much more realistic experience, but more than that, you could use this new feature to your advantage. You can position yourself in such a way to flank the enemy while they're fixated on your last known position. It allowed you to turn the tables in a pretty believable way. While the enemy AI in Conviction wasn't always the greatest from what I remember, it was still pretty believable and allowed the player to react in such a way that makes real-world sense. You could flank your enemies and turn the tables offensively, or you could continue to hide or even retreat from the area altogether. Because more than anything when thinking about this mechanic, it made getting discovered in a stealth game something that you could recover from. What I mean is, it wasn't an immediate game over situation where you would just want to start the level over. Getting caught certainly sucks, but you can still turn the situation around, and I love the last known position mechanic for this. 
The other mechanic that Conviction brought to the table was the Mark and Execute mechanic. Some people call this the easy button, and they might be right in some ways, but you cannot deny that this mechanic is not only fun, but it was very, very cool, especially if you're playing with another player, and you can both use this mechanic together. Now, the way Mark and Execute works is very simple. If you can see an enemy and put your targeting cursor on them, you can mark them. A little indicator will float above their head, and you can track them through the level. Certain weapons will allow you to mark more enemies at once, but that is only part of the fun. Once you perform a close quarters takedown of an enemy, you gain the ability to execute. If you move Sam in range of a marked enemy, and he has clear line of sight to that enemy, and he's within range of them with his currently equipped weapon, the little indicator will turn from white to red. Press the execute button from here, and Sam will immediately shoot any enemies that you have marked that are in your line of sight. Pew pew, done and done. Now that all sounds really simple, and it sort of kind of is. But depending on how you play and how you set yourself up in the playfield, you can do some pretty amazing things by combining this tactic with others. I personally loved taking out enemies one by one and using an execute to mop up any stragglers. Sometimes an execute would be a lifesaver if all of a sudden an enemy is about to discover you and you have the option to execute them quickly. One of my favorite room-clearing tactics is to cling to the ceiling or a high railing, mark everyone in the room, wait until everyone is within range, fall down and close quarters kill one enemy, which gives me the ability to execute, and then use said execute on the three or so knuckleheads who are slowly turning to face me. It is incredibly fun. And I can understand why some of the hardcore Splinter Cell fans out there don't like this technique, but god damn. There aren't too many game mechanics out there that really put me in the shoes of the character I'm playing, not quite like Conviction. I have beaten this game multiple times, and I still get a small smile on my face when I walk into a room and execute my right to the fifth freedom. Number 4 Silent Hill for the original PlayStation has a game mechanic that I consider to be my fourth favorite. I am a huge fan of the Silent Hill series as a whole, and I loved a lot of the unique ideas that were pumped into this series. But one of my favorites is probably one of the more simpler mechanics, but it made wandering through the fog-filled streets just a little bit more bearable. In Silent Hill, our main character, Harry Mason, is on a mission to find his lost daughter, Cheryl. It's pretty obvious that something is very wrong with the town. A dense fog has rolled in, obscuring Harry's view, and hidden within the fog are countless monsters and other grotesque horrors. 
It's up to Harry to brave the streets of Silent Hill and search for his daughter before the evil in the town finds her and engulfs her. It was an incredible game for the time, and I argue it's still very much playable today. But Silent Hill brought a few things to the survival horror experience that really enhanced your journey. Now, one might be thinking I'm talking about the radio that Harry finds early in the game. It is a pretty awesome game mechanic on its own, I will definitely give you that. When Harry has a radio turned on and it's on his person, it will emit a static white noise whenever a monster is near. It'll get louder the closer you get to the monster, so not only is it a great way to figure out where the baddies are and how to potentially avoid the danger if you don't want to confront it, it's a mechanic that really pulls you into the experience in a way not many other mechanics can. You're always on guard, you're always listening, and the moment you hear that static, your hair stands on end. It is incredibly simple, but it is an extremely effective mechanic. You might also think that I'm talking about Harry's flashlight and the lighting mechanics of Silent Hill. And while those are pretty amazing in and of themselves, especially for a PlayStation 1 era game, I am not talking about that one either. My favorite mechanic in Silent Hill is the game's in-game map. More specifically, how Harry interacts with said in-game map while you're exploring. Yes, that's right. I'm talking about the little marks that Harry makes on the map as you explore Silent Hill. Now, I'm sure somebody listening to this is probably scratching their head right now, especially if you're someone that hasn't played Silent Hill before. I mean, I get it, that does not sound exciting in the slightest, but hear me out. As you play Silent Hill, you'll come across several maps that you can use to get your bearings and figure out where you are, and potentially figure out where you need to go next. The first map you'll find is of Silent Hill's main area. When you're playing through the game, all it takes is a simple button press to bring the map up and you can view it. Harry's position is noted on it, and it's a pretty simple tool to use in its own right. As you're moving from place to place and you're constantly referencing this map, it's very easy to project yourself onto Harry himself. He's just a regular guy with no combat training, his abilities are limited, and he's in a place that he's never been in before, and that can be very disorienting in and of itself. He enters Silent Hill as a complete stranger and has no idea really where he is and where he needs to go. Half of the game is more or less spent wandering around and exploring areas that you're in trying to find the right item you need or the right passageway to progress forward. It can all certainly add to the tension and the fear factor of it all. Not every door will open for you and not every path will lead somewhere. It can be very disorienting and even a bit frustrating if you find yourself in the same places that you've been over and over again. Even more so when your little radio keeps emitting static and you can't help but feel like you're in constant danger. So what's a person to do in a situation like this? Well, you bust out your red marker. As you move through Silent Hill, Harry will automatically use a red marker and mark on the map what doors he can and can't go through, what passageways lead towards dead ends, and even mark points of interest on his map if he comes across any clues pointing to that area. He'll even mark the location of some puzzles you need to solve. Again, it is all a very simple concept, but it changes the way that you play the game entirely. In Silent Hill, the player is not given any sort of tutorial or any sort of hints or objective markers. 
You're just dropped into the town with the one singular objective that you have at the start of the game. Find Harry's daughter. Because you really have nothing to go on, exploration had an actual weight to it when you could not only see where you've been, but you're able to use the marks on your map as a means to figure out where you need to go next. It really invokes that sense of exploration as you go. In most games of this type, you can find hidden items or resources off the beaten path, so I always made it a point to explore every nook and cranny. Plus, once I move through an area, Harry will have marked it off on his map, so I knew that I had already been there and wouldn't need to revisit that area again. Backtracking as a whole is a necessary component to survival horror games at times, but the marks on the map really cut down on backtracking considerably. So of all the benefits that came with Harry marking things on his map, I appreciated the fact that this made the game considerate of my time. It allowed me to explore, but it also allowed me to stay on task and not waste time fumbling around in the dark. And for a game like Silent Hill, I really appreciated this approach. But I will say, nothing was more creepy than entering the dark other world and opening the map to an area that I was just in to see all the marks that I had made gone. What was happening? Where was I? Such is the dark mystery of Silent Hill. Number 3 My number three favorite game mechanic is the Materia system in Final Fantasy VII. Ah, yes. 36 episodes into the podcast and we are finally talking about my favorite video game. Everyone who's played a Final Fantasy has their favorites, and I agree that some games are potentially better than others, but if there's one thing that we can all agree on, it's that the mechanics of each game help distinguish each title more than the number at the end of their name. Final Fantasy VII, for the uninitiated, is a role-playing game that centers around our main protagonist, Cloud Strife. Cloud is a mercenary and former soldier first class. He joins up with a rebel faction called Avalanche, a group of people who are trying to stop Shinra, an electric power company that is draining the planet's life stream for energy. The planet is quite literally dying, and Cloud joins Avalanche as a hired hand for a quick payday, but a simple job turns into so much more. In previous Final Fantasy games, characters you play as often had a clear and definable job or role in your party. Some include the hard-hitting warrior, the magic-focused black mage, the healing-focused white mage, the speedy thief, and so on. Roles like these would often come with specific stats, abilities, and equipment that can be used. It was all pretty clear who did what, and you would tailor your party based specifically on what you needed your party to be able to accomplish in a specific combat scenario. 
Final Fantasy VII, however, took a very different approach to this. While each character you came across had their own inherent strengths and weaknesses, they didn't learn abilities based on those characteristics. To gain an ability, such as casting a specific magic spell or using a specific command ability, characters had to equip these little orbs called Materia. If you had a lightning magic materia, you could slot that materia into your character's equipped weapon or armor, and then that character would be able to cast the spell lightning in battle. More than that, equipping materia can also alter your character's statistics. Magic materia, for instance, would increase a character's magic stats by a few points, but it would also reduce their strength a little bit. So even though you gained the ability to cast magic in battle, you had to be mindful that that made you just a little less physically effective. Because of this, you couldn't just overload your character with materia. You had to be somewhat strategic about doing it. On the surface, the idea of materia is pretty simple, but where the materia system really got fun was with the different combinations that you could form by linking some materia together. Here's a quick example. If you had a Cure Materia, it would allow you to cast the spell Cure, which will heal a member of your party. If you pair the Cure Materia with the All Materia, you could then cast that spell on all of your members of the party. Again, a simple concept that really gives you a ton of options and customization choices when it comes to gameplay. The number of Materia in this game is pretty robust as well, so the possibilities are practically endless. While some characters are more versed to certain tactics based on their core stats, anybody can essentially be a healer, a tank, or a damage dealer. Some of my favorite materia combinations were pairing a powerful magic materia with an MP absorb, so I could recover some magic points while also damaging my enemies. Pairing added effect materia with a materia called contain was another fun one. This would give your character's basic attack a chance to cause petrify, confusion, berserk, and paralysis on an enemy and really fuck up their day. Pairing the final attack materia with the revive materia was also a good one too. The final attack materia lets you cast a magic spell right when your character dies, so what better spell to cast as your final hurrah than a revive spell? Well, actually, pairing it with the summon Phoenix is a good one, too. Phoenix revives the entire party and deals damage when it's summoned. But of all the different materia combinations I can think of, my favorite materia to use was one called Counter. If you pair Counter with a command materia, you'll perform whatever action that command materia is when you take damage from the enemy. But there is one combination of materia that is so ridiculous, I have to mention it because it gives you an idea of how crazy this whole materia system is if you take your time and really run wild with it. I came across a Final Fantasy VII materia combination guide on YouTube from a channel called 4-8 Productions, or however they pronounce it, that found the highest damage-dealing combination of materia out there, and I just wanted to share it really quick. There's a command materia that you can find called Mime, and when you use it, your character will perform the last action that was taken by your party the turn before. If Cloud just cast Fire, and someone uses the Mime materia right after that, they'll cast Fire, even if that particular character doesn't have the Fire materia equipped. Now, let's pair Mime with Counter. 
If a character takes damage, they'll perform the last command that was done. This on its own can be pretty random, but here's where it gets interesting. If you master and equip eight mime materia along with eight counter materia, your character will respond with eight of the previous action that was taken by your party when they're attacked. Are you following along so far? Now, what if that ability that was just used was potentially the strongest damage dealing ability in the game? Say, Cloud's ultimate limit break, Omni Slash, for instance. Yes, if Cloud has this materia set up and performs his 15 hit limit break attack, then takes damage from an enemy right after if they somehow survive, he will counter with Omni Slash eight times on that enemy. Eight! So, quick math. If each hit does the maximum allotment of 9,999 damage, that's 9999 times 15, which comes out to 149,985 bits of damage. Multiply that by 8, and you come to a whopping 1,199,880 damage. That is enough to kill any enemy in this game, and yes, that is including the game's super bosses, emerald, and ruby weapon. Is that just not fucking ludicrous? All of this to say that the Materia system really adds a layer to this game that really makes the whole experience unique. You're almost limited only by your imagination and the amounts of time needed to level up the Materia needed for some of these combinations, but more than that, it allowed me as the player to find different ways to combat certain situations that really tailor the gameplay experiences to my tastes. In an odd way, it helped me mold the characters themselves into the versions of them that I saw in my head. Cloud was my damage-dealing powerhouse, Tifa was my speedy thief, Aerith was my healer and magic dealer, and so on. But the best part is, it doesn't have to be that way. You're free to experiment with whatever combinations of abilities you want, and just the idea really made this game something special to experience. When I was a kid, all I could think of when I was grinding this game out was seeing what cool and new thing I could come up with, and you cannot put a price on a game that gets you excited quite like this. Number 2 Number two pick, I had to go with the original Resident Evil 4 and its adaptive difficulty mechanic. Now, I struggled a little deciding if this mechanic really belonged on the list since the player really didn't have any direct control over it or could interact with it in the traditional sense, but when I thought about it, your actions do impact this mechanic whether you know it or not, so I decided it belonged. So I have to assume most Resident Evil 4 fans are aware of the adaptive difficulty mechanic, but if you are not, prepare to be amazed and enlightened. I have to assume most of you listening have at least an idea of what sort of game Resident Evil 4 is, 
Plus, it just got a remake that is just straight up fire, so RE4 is sort of all the rage right now. But just in case, let me set the scene briefly. Resident Evil 4 stars series favorite Leon S. Kennedy. Now an agent of the U.S. government, Leon is sent to a remote part of Spain in an effort to track down and rescue the president's daughter, Ashley, who has been kidnapped by unknown individuals. The game is a far departure from the original Resident Evil titles. RE4 is a lot heavier on the action, sporting an over-the-shoulder camera view that allows players to target enemies pretty much anywhere, thanks to a laser sighting system on all weapons. Slow, shambling zombies are no more, and instead, Leon will find himself fighting mind-controlled villagers and other human enemies. They behave and act very intelligently at times, and will often work together to take Leon out by means of brute force, or even finding ways to flank around him. The entire experience can be a bit daunting to some players, especially because your success really depends on your ability to be accurate with your shots and evade incoming attacks from all directions. But this is where the game's amazing adaptive difficulty comes into play. When playing on the default difficulty level, things are pretty evened out. Enemies are aggressive, but not overly so. Damage they deal is average, and the items they drop are here and there. If you continually do well in the game, where you're landing all of your shots accurately and quickly, you aren't taking damage, and you're stockpiling a decent amount of ammo and healing items, the game will start to ratchet up the difficulty. Enemies will take more hits to go down, they'll deal more damage to you if they hit you, and the ammo won't drop nearly as frequently. Or, if you're a terrible shot, continually take damage and die often, enemies will be much less aggressive and move around much slower. You'll take less damage, and ammo drops will be much more plentiful. There's even some enemies in the game that won't appear at all if you're really struggling through the game. For those that have played the game before, do you remember that wide open area inside the castle with the water lake things on either side of you with the walkway in the middle? I think people just refer to this as the water room. But when you enter this room and you're doing relatively well, you'll be faced down with seven enemies in front of you initially, but there will be two crossbow enemies stationed up high on either side of the room in the distance and they'll rain down the pain from above. If you're not doing so well and have died a few times recently, the game takes out the crossbow baddies and eases up the aggressiveness of the remaining bad guys pretty noticeably. Now these changes that occur are very subtle and they are not at all in your face. And that, to me, is the beauty of it all. You see, there's plenty of games out there that will offer the player the option to reduce the difficulty of a game if it gets too difficult to move past a level or you can't find your way past an objective. And these approaches are not subtle at all, and sometimes they can even be quite insulting to the player. My go-to example for this is Metal Gear Solid V The Phantom Pain. If you fail a mission one too many times, the game will offer to lower the difficulty by making your character harder to detect by the enemies in that level so you can sneak past easier and get to where you need to go and past what's holding you back. But this requires your character to wear a ridiculous-looking chicken hat. I mean, it's kind of funny when you think about it, but really, it's an in-your-face prompt that almost quite literally says, Hey, you there. You are fucking terrible. Put this chicken hat on and show us all how much you suck. 
and we'll make this game much easier for you, you skillless piece of shit. Or at least that's how I felt when I was prompted for the chicken hat. Not only did it make me feel like crap since I was already having a hard time with the mission that I was on, but I was too proud to accept the help, so I kept struggling and struggling and had absolutely no fun at all during that particular part of the game. This is why the adaptive difficulty in Resident Evil 4 is so groundbreaking. While some gamers are just flat-out skilled and it's really a non-factor at times, sometimes you really do need a helping hand without something coming along and being all blunt about it. When I think about my gaming experiences when it comes to my own skill and the game's difficulty, I envision both rising at a somewhat steady clip together. Meaning, as I get more skilled at a game, the difficulty should be running parallel to meet me. If a game gets too hard and I'm not skilled enough to meet the challenge, the fun wears off. But on the other hand, if I'm becoming skilled but the difficulty never gets any worse, that is also no fun. Difficulty and player skill need to match as closely as possible, and Resident Evil 4's ability to dynamically adjust difficulty on the fly makes for the perfect system that grants accessibility to pretty much any type of gamer. And while Resident Evil 4 is a masterpiece on its own, it's the unsung hero that is the adaptive difficulty that I argue really made this game the success that it is. Before we get to my number one favorite video game mechanic, I wanted to shout out Captain N, who chimed in over on our Twitter page with his favorite game mechanic. He said, The Double Jump. It has to be the best mechanic on any platformer, 2D or 3D. Now that is a fantastic call out, Captain, and I am actually ashamed to admit that the double jump didn't even cross my mind when I made this list. But hot damn. Think of all the games out there that use double jumping and how the gameplay experience changes because of its addition. Grabbing the Leapstone in Castlevania Symphony of the Night, which gave you the ability to double jump, changed the whole game by giving you access to more areas, and it made Alucard look like a badass anytime he performed it. Double jumping in games like Celeste are practically required to move forward and are an essential skill to master. Double jumping isn't just a nice addition to games that they're included in, they alter the game experience at its core, and it's a game mechanic that should not go unmentioned. Thank you a ton, Captain N, for chiming in and calling out the double jump. For those of you listening that find themselves on Twitch to hang out and watch some fine people play video games, check out Captain N and throw him a follow. You can find him at Captain N vs. The Game, with underscores separating all of that, and his streams are always very laid back and very relaxing. Go check him out, and when you do, tell him Nomad sent you. Number one.
My number one favorite video game mechanic is the base building mechanic in Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker. I absolutely love the idea behind this entire game, and I've pumped countless hours of my life into this beautiful gem. And I would absolutely do it again without a second thought. Peace Walker was originally released on the PlayStation Portable back in 2010, and then later released in HD format on the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360. Players take control of Naked Snake, or Big Boss as he's more commonly known, who has made his way to Columbia. It's ten years after the events of Metal Gear Solid Snake Eater, and Snake is leading a small group of mercenaries. Snake, who is tired and battle-weary after the events of Snake Eater, finds himself face-to-face with a man named Ramon Galvez. He tries to convince Snake and his mercenary outfit to investigate an unknown military force that has started to occupy parts of Costa Rica. At first, Snake tells Galvez to go pound salt, but there's a young girl with Galvez named Paz. She plays for Snake a voice recording, and as soon as Snake registers the woman's voice he's hearing on that recording, he immediately changes his mind and accepts the mission. Why the sudden change of heart? The voice that Snake heard belonged to the boss, Snake's former mentor, someone who should be dead. I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of the storyline or anything here. Any fan of the Metal Gear series knows the story in this franchise is all over the goddamn place. And while this game has a fantastic story on its own, in my opinion, it is secondary to the overall gameplay experience. When the game begins, Galvez gives Snake and his unit access to an abandoned offshore oil rig to use as their base of operations. It's fairly small to start, but the way it's designed, it can be expanded and built upon. Building and expanding your base is just about as important as completing missions and progressing the story. When Snake and his unit arrive at the oil rig, they begin to refer to it as their mother base. You're going to be spending a decent amount of time at Mother Base, and while that already sounds tedious on the outside, it is anything but. Building up Mother Base and expanding it by researching new equipment and filling it with new recruits is a huge part of Peace Walker. Your army has several teams that you're going to need to staff with the right people. You have your combat units, which you can take on actual missions instead of Snake himself. You have your medical crew that you're going to need to stock up so you can take care of any injuries sustained on the battlefield. You have an intelligence team that you're going to need to get you vital information on your missions. A mess hall team to make sure that your team is well fed and morale is boosted. And a research and development team to make sure that you are on the forefront of all that is cutting edge. As you play missions, you can knock out enemy soldiers and send them back to Mother Base and convince them to join you in your cause. Each soldier you send back has certain skill ratings that make them more applicable to certain teams. As your teams level up with the right people, more game options are going to open up for you. Level up the R&D team and they'll start to make different weapons and equipment that you can take into battle. Items are generally found on missions, but in Peace Walker, you bring what you have from Mother Base, so you want the best R&D team making you the best possible gear. Leveling up the Intel team is another thing that's really going to open up some things for you, because you'll gain more information about a mission before you actually partake in it, and you can plan your missions much easier than going in and not knowing what to expect. 
Mother Base itself, though, does have some limited capacity. You can recruit up to 350 soldiers and no more than that, and then you can also capture enemy vehicles as well, but you only have so much room that you can carry up to 50. Still, that is plenty of space for a lot of people, and it's really awesome watching your mother base fill up with the right talent. While I loved the gameplay in Peace Walker, I had an absolute blast replaying missions to scout for the best talent and bring them back to mother base. It was almost like capturing Pokemon, to be completely honest with you. It takes a lot of time to get your different teams to maximum, and even longer to research and develop all that the game has to offer, but it always felt like I was working towards something. For me, I adore Big Boss as a character, and he's absolutely a leader that I would follow into battle, no question. So the idea that I could build this base of mercenaries up alongside him was very satisfying to me. It was more than just becoming more powerful. I genuinely believed in the idea behind why Big Boss wanted to do what he was doing in this game. That empathy made the journey I took that much more relatable, and by the time the game came to an end, and I had done all that there was to do, I felt an incredible sense of pride stepping back and seeing all that it was that I built. I even found myself somewhat attached to the men and women that I'd recruited over the many hours of gameplay. Each mission I went on was just another step towards building something amazing, and I really think the base building mechanic is the reason this game is so popular. Really, it's the closest game mechanic that I can relate to my real life. I like looking at the things that I have built, where I'm at with my career, my hobbies, my relationships, and just my own skills and ability to do things. It's very easy to compare the two, and because of that, that's what makes Peace Walker so accessible, and it makes it such a great experience for me. But above all else, when I play Peace Walker and I embark on a mission, I find that I am completely immersed. Not only am I trying to accomplish my mission, but I'm also being mindful enough to keep an eye out for anything that can make Mother Base potentially more stronger and better well-equipped. Because the mercenaries that I'm gathering together and the army that I'm building is counting on me, and I am not going to let them down. They chose to follow me into the depths of hell, and the least I can do is give them all a purpose and a proper home. It's our heaven and our hell. This is Outer Heaven. And with that, we've come to the end of episode 36 of the Retro Wildlands, my top 10 favorite video game mechanics. If you've made it this far, thank you very much for checking out the show today. I had a really good time putting this list together and revisiting some really amazing games that I've played over the years. It was really fun looking at them with more of a magnifying glass than normal and picking out mechanics that make up my favorites. 
I struggled at times to pick things that really fit the definition since I believe it can be interpreted a few different ways, but I'm happy with what I came up with and I hope you found the show entertaining. At their cores, video games are born from the minds of some of the most creative and passionate people, and I can't be more thankful to those that poured their blood, sweat, and tears into the things that I love so much and bring me so much joy. If you like the show and want to show it and myself some support, please consider subscribing to us on your preferred podcasting platform. I'm at a spot in my podcasting career where balancing my family, friends, and my full-time job, hobbies, and personal time has been a bit of a struggle lately, so episodes are releasing more sporadically than I would like. Subscribing to the show will make sure that you're immediately notified when I do drop new episodes. I still have some that are in the works, so make sure you stay tuned. Now, if you really like what I'm doing here and you aren't ashamed to say that you enjoyed the show, please consider spreading the word about the podcast to anyone you think might enjoy a tired, middle-aged Italian man talk about video games. You can also check us out on social media if you want to keep up on the show between episodes. We have a presence over on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube if you search at Retro Wildlands. I try to post something at least once a day to spice up some timelines and feeds, and I'm pretty responsive to comments and DMs, so if you want to interact with a small community that's building up, or you want to reach out and chat with me directly, this is how you can do that. Or you have my permission to check us out and lurk in the shadows. No pressure to interact or anything, so if you just want some cool video game stuff on your pages, throw us a follow. Here in the Retro Wildlands, all are welcome. So, what's coming up next? I finished a Super Nintendo game and an original Nintendo game over the last week or so, and I'm trying to decide which one I'm going to commit an episode of the show to. Since I'm not completely sure, I don't want to take a guess right now for the fear that I might change my mind, but it's going to be one of those two. Follow us on social media if you don't want to wait, because eventually I will let the cat out of the bag when I put a call out for comments and questions about the game that I decide on, so this is going to be your way to get a leg up. I've been completing a decent amount of games these last few weeks, which is awesome. Now I just need to pump out some podcasts for you all. While my output has slowed down, I'm still having a fantastic time making shows for you all, so I am hoping to see you next time when we take our expedition into the gaming wilderness for fun, adventure, and a little bit of nostalgia. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. <laughs>